Purple Elephant Shower Thought of the Day is a quote from the Bhagavad Gita. You have the right to work, but for the work's sake only. You have no right to the fruits of work. Desire for the fruits of work must never be your motive in working. Never give way to laziness either. This is Purple Elephant Radio, where we hear about storytelling, originality, and creativity from the creators who are actually making something matter. I'm your host, Sean Green. Today's episode, the solo episode about artificial intelligence and machine learning and what that means for creators and creatives and artists, has been a doozy to create. To kind of pull back the curtains on how I make these solo episodes, usually I'll read a book or two and kind of obsess over a topic, listen to podcasts about it, just consume as much information as I can. And at the same time, I'm kind of taking notes of my own thoughts, the thoughts that I ar- that arise when I read a book that may have nothing to do with what I was just reading. And this process, and using this process for this solo episode, has kind of felt like when Hercules was trying to slay Hydra, the the dragon that when you cut off one head, two more grow back. Felt like every time I would come to a conclusion or feel like I had understood something related to artificial intelligence, two more heads would pop up. Two more things that I would have to dive deeper into. And I'm recording now, and I'll just tell you in full transparency, I haven't made any firm conclusions. I've kind of consumed as much as I can, and I could always consume more, always learn more. But ultimately, I think the point of this is that whatever I'm sharing, I'm learning along with you. I'm not going to say I'm an expert on artificial intelligence, not by any stretch of the imagination. But I do think that from what I've consumed, I could offer some comfort or at least some guidance into the future. Even if it's not perfect, I still think I have something worth sharing with you today. My guiding question when doing the the prep work for this episode was a little bit selfish. And it was, will creatives and an artist and human creativity, will a machine ever be able to do that better than us? And I think what I've realized is eventually. But the answer isn't simply, yes, uh, a machine will be better and artificial intelligent being will be more creative than us at some point. It's not that simple. There's so much that goes into it. And so what I want to do in this episode is kind of explain, well, what artificial intelligence is, because it's a lot of things, but also say, where are we now? How complex is it really today? Not some abstract future prediction, but what's real, what is currently possible right now? And should we be scared or optimistic or joyful or maybe a little bit of everything? And I think my thesis at least the the argument that I'm going to make for this episode is that AI is going to make us more human. And I'll get into what that means, but just hold that in the back of your head. AI is designed to make us more human. Now the books for the most 
Now, for the most part, the book I'm going to be referring to is The Creativity Code by Marcus Dusatoy. And the other book, which I'll reference a little bit more towards the end, is The Singularity is Near by Ray Kurzweil. Now, what I really like about uh, The Creativity Code is that the focus is on the present day um, and what's currently possible in the realm of artificial intelligence. And uh, Marcus Dusatoy he looks at artificial intelligence and machine learning through the lens of games and, you know, art, making art. And this definitely contrasts uh, Ray Kurzweil's book very nicely because with Ray in, in The Singularity is Near, he's focused on more long-term predictions. And he definitely puts more emphasis on the role of emerging technologies for human biology. So I think the majority of this podcast is going to be focused on the creativity code because, you know, with this podcast, I look at these themes of artificial intelligence through the lens of creativity and art. And the last thing I'll say about the other book, The Singularity is Near, is I like that Kurzweil kind of brings up the philosophical implications of artificial intelligence because it's not as simple as does the technology exist? We as humans are going to have to overcome a lot of our biases. We're, the, the moral of the story with AI is the same level of thinking that got us here will not be the same level of thinking that we take with us to new heights. And if that's, I don't know if that's confusing, but we will dive as deep as possible, I promise. And again, in wrapping up this introduction and in doing the prep work for this episode, I couldn't help but think of all the philosophy that I've kind of covered in some of my previous solo episodes. I'm thinking back to episode four, um, where I talked about Tony Robbins, six human needs. And I may touch on this a little bit later, but I'll just remind you it's certainty, uncertainty, significance, love and connection, growth and contribution. I also thought of Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, and he kind of laid out three ways to find meaning in your life, no matter what your circumstances are. And again, I don't know if I'm going to refer to these again, so I'll remind you. Um, the first one is creating something or doing an action that you deem meaningful. The second is having an experience or going on a journey that's meaningful to you. And the third thing is choosing your mindset no matter how difficult your circumstances are. And so Viktor Frankl's, um, Viktor Frankl's criteria for having meaning include even the worst scenarios. I mean, this is a man who survived the Holocaust. So let him and, you know, kind of all these philosophical thinkers provide a, a light that no matter what happens, there will be a place for us to find meaning in our lives if we're open to it, I should add. And I also thought of Alan Watts, which I did a full episode for, I want to say episode 8 or 14, um, but I did a full episode about him. And I may be referring to some of his philosophical concepts too because I think really so much philosophy has its implications in in artificial intelligence because it's basically artificial intelligence is really bringing all these abstract concepts that philosophers talked about 
and bringing them to reality where the discussions they have now have real-world implications. And on that same note, I think it's these philosophers who may be dead. It's using their writings and their, their teachings and letting that guide us in creating artificially intelligent beings. Because if AI can represent the best of our can represent the best of what it means to be human, then I think no matter what happens, life will go on. So to kick off this episode, I want to get specific about certain concepts. I want to talk about when I say artificial intelligence, you know what I mean, because I think we see a lot of marketing about it, and it's going to be probably even more prominent when people are boasting that, oh, I have AI on my in my business. We got to understand what it means because AI is like saying, yeah, I, I own a business. It's like, oh, what do you do? We do business stuff. That's like when you, that's the equivalent of saying, oh yeah, we have AI. What does it do? Oh, artificially intelligent stuff. We got to get specific. I also want to talk about what I mean when I say creativity, because, you know, we can talk about what's creative, what, what counts as creative and of course, it's subjective. Uh, and we might talk about beauty. What constitutes beauty? Well, it's in the eye of the beholder. And so let's get specific. To start, artificial intelligence. It's a field of developing computers and robots that are capable of behaving in ways that both mimic and go beyond human capabilities. Notice it says computers and robots. It doesn't have to be some robot that can walk and speak in a language. It can be a program, a computer program. It doesn't have to be a tangible thing in the real world, which I'm sure makes it a little bit more complicated. But just know that artificial intelligence is the whole thing, the surrounding theme. It's not, oh, I can point to this. I can touch it with my finger and say, this is AI. It's a, a, an abstract thing that represents computer programs going beyond or learning at the level of humans. Now within AI, there are a couple kind of specific categories. There's machine learning and deep learning. And when we say machine learning, it's when we feed a ton of data into a computer program. And I, I will give specific examples, I promise, later in this episode. It's giving a machine data and allowing it to find patterns and, you know, kind of make its own conclusions based on what it sees. And a lot of that is discovering patterns. Deep learning goes one step further than that and says, okay, I've given you this data, but now I want you to create your own data based on the data and learn from that. And we'll talk about chess and the game of go where deep learning is really clearly expressed but just know that it goes one step beyond machine learning when a machine is learning from itself from its own data that it's creating there's also a, a term you may hear associated with artificial intelligence and that's neural networks and you can kind of think of a, a neural network an artificial neural network inspired by brain neurons firing biological neurons where we know when we have a 
thought. It's not just one little click in our head. It's tons of microscopic neurons communicating with billions of different neurons. And it's really just a, an algor a computer algorithm, a computer program kind of mimicking that complexity. Because, you know, when we talk about a, an artificially intelligent computer program, it's not just input this, output that. It's input, 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 output, 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 which becomes another input, which becomes another output, which becomes, and it's a self of like, it's going off in all sorts of directions. And there's this complexity. And when you kind of zoom out, it looks like this unbelievably complex web, like a spider's web, where, you know, one thing is touching this, and it's touching that, and it's leading to that. And so it's very complex. But I think when you hear neural networks, just think of it's kind of the way biological neurons occur in our brains, the way they communicate with one another quickly. There's also computer vision and natural language processing to other terms you might associate with artificial intelligence. And it it's probably easy enough to know what they're about. Computer vision is, when you think of an artificially intelligent program, being able to recognize objects in a photo. If you guys think of when you try to log on to a website sometimes, it'll ask you to pick, oh, you know, tell me which photo has a street light in it. And you may click, you know, a couple out of the nine or 10 that they provide you with. And when we do that, I don't know if everyone knows this, but it's not really trying to prevent a computer from hacking on. It's more so to teach a computer, to teach a artificially intelligent program what is in the picture. It's basically humans providing data, feeding it into an algorithm to teach it that whatever blank amount of pixels are on the screen in this order, it will be, you know, a, a street light or a cat or a plant or a tree, whatever it may, the case may be. And the other piece is natural language processing, which is unbelievably complex, you know, no matter what language. And English is probably one of the most complex languages to have artificial intelligence learn. And this is being used currently for, you know, you may see on an e-commerce store, the bottom right side of the screen, a customer chat bot. And you're shopping for something and it says, oh, can I help you find anything? And it's nine times, honestly, 10 times out of 10, that's probably an artificial and an artificially intelligent program. And it's looking for certain inputs, you might say, I'm looking for something under this price. And it'll kind of see that input and respond in a natural way. And along with natural language processing, we have kind of translating between languages. Google Translate is kind of this uh, amazing, I mean, I think Google Translate is doing awesome things, especially in the realm of kind of not really needing to learn another language because we can translate it so easily. But I don't know if you've ever taken a, a language in high school or college and you, you input, you know, everything you want to say in English and put that in Google Translate and get, you know, Spanish or Italian or French, you get that back, you write it all down. And your teacher instantly knows you used some software to translate it. And your teacher knows because even if a even if Google Translate can get the right words, it has a weird feel. It doesn't feel natural. And 
you know, I'll, I'll give them credit. A lot of translation software is getting immensely better at this. But it's kind of, you know, knowing when to use formal language versus informal language, knowing when to use this verb or that verb, even if they mean very similar things. It's kind of that stuff that we're never essentially taught as humans, but we just kind of pick it up. And when it comes to teaching an AI software, we have to get very specific and kind of it has to study tons of data, tons of conversations to realize that context because it doesn't come instantly as it, we kind of learn it naturally as humans. Okay, so those are kind of the, the big concepts in AI. I talked about you know, what it means, AI, the whole overarching thing. I talked about machine learning, deep learning, neural networks, computer vision, and natural language processing. And we'll see that that really does cover the broad spectrum of AI. Now we need to back up from that and talk about what constitutes creativity. Because it's kind of hard to judge if a machine can be creative if we don't know how we define it. And I really like in the creative code how they very specifically lay out what constitutes creativity. And Deuce Toy writes, it has to be new, surprising, and valuable. Now, even though those are specific things, they're very subjective. I mean, new to who? Maybe someone knew this, but another person didn't. Surprising to who? Because, you know, not everything is surprising or shocking. Maybe we have seen patterns in the past and, oh, this is true. Oh, I could kind of understand why that might, might be true. So a new discovery is not always surprising. And valuable. Valuable how? Does that mean people are willing to pay money for it? People appreciate it? Can art be valuable even if it's offered for free? Maybe it inspires one person, but did it inspire a whole group of people? Is there a certain number of people that it has to inspire, a certain dollar amount for something to be considered valuable? These are all questions without, without easy answers, but they are kind of a, a good framework that we can work with when it comes to figuring out if a machine can be creative. Now, on that same topic, there's also kind of the categories of creativity. And in talking about the three kind of main categories of creativity, Dusatoy gives credit to Margaret Bowden, who kind of defined these three concepts of creativity. And the first is exploratory creativity. And that's when you're taking what's already there and exploring its outer edges. Essentially, we're not reinventing the wheel but we're seeing how fast we can get the car. It's not reinventing a means of transportation, but making it more efficient, faster, cheaper, whatever the case may be. It's, it's exploring the outer limits of something that already exists. And Margaret Bowden kind of argues that exploration accounts for 97% of human creativity. And that's also the type of creativity that computers can be very good at because they can take a set of rules or a certain pattern and extrapolate it to it, its extreme. But does that mean it's creative? Because most likely it, it's not surprising if it's following a very specific pattern. Now the next type of creativity is combinational creativity. And that's when you take two kind of existing constructs and find a unique way to combine them. And I think a very nice example of this is Apple and, and Steve Jobs. Because I think what he combined was 
the embodiment of counterculture ideals with computers and technology and kind of making technology cool for the artist. And so those are two very opposing ideas. And that's just, you know, the first example that comes to my head. And again, artificial intelligence can be very good at combinational creativity. And the reason for that is, you know, let's say we're taking two, two musicians, because this is a, an example they give in the book, say the Beatles and Bob Dylan, an algorithm could study the patterns of, you know, what makes a Beatles song a Beatles song? And that same program could study, you know, what makes Bob Dylan's music sound like Bob Dylan? And then it could take the patterns that it notices of Bob Dylan's lyrics and put that in the, the boundaries of a Beatles song and kind of using that that program by studying those patterns, it can create new music, this uh, beautiful combination of Bob Dylan's lyrics and the Beatles music. And that's just one example. It's not necessarily simple. It takes an immense amount of data, but that's one of the possibilities. That's one way it could be used. So yes, that, that could be valuable. I'm sure people would love a, a song like that, where it combines the elements of Bob Dylan and the Beatles. And yes, it would be new because you could take the patterns and create new lyrics that kind of follow the rules. But is it surprising? That's the real question. Because if we spend uh, the rest of our culture just copying the artists of our past, even if we combine them in interesting ways, we're not really making anything so extraordinarily new that it changes the culture. And that leads to the last type of creativity, transformational creativity. Think of Picasso and Cubism. And I would argue, think of Hemingway in, in literature. Transformational creativity is when you change the rules of the game, or at least long-held assumptions. You know, one, one method might be, right now we know that to make kind of a, a classic pop song, you need chorus, then verse one, then chorus, then verse two, then a bridge, then a chorus. And it's kind of, it has this meta structure. But what if you change the structure? What if you change the rules and the limits? Would that make an entirely new type of music? A transformational type of music? I don't know. Now, I, I like Dusatoy gives an example of a transformational moment in math. And hang on with me because, trust me, I'm, I'm not a calculus guy. But the creation of the square root of minus one was a transformational moment in math. Now I took calculus back in high school and I vaguely remember when that was taught. I think it's when you get it down to that and you you have the square root of negative one, which is normally impossible to have a square root of a negative number. That goes by the the letter I for an imaginary number. And that was essentially invented in the mid 16th century. You may think, oh, how can they invent a, a new number? Well, at 1.0 was invented. What it's doing is, when it comes to math, yes, it's very logical. But if something hasn't, if a term or a concept hasn't been included in the, the equations, but when you add it, everything still works. It doesn't break any of the logic. Then it's almost like it was discovered. 
like it was meant to be there because it fits in with all the other logical equations. And Dusatoy asks, would a computer come up with the concept of the square root of minus one? If it were only fed data telling it that there is no number whose square could be negative? A truly creative act, he adds, sometimes requires us to step outside the system and create a new reality. Now, obviously, we can't, it, we can't know if an algorithm would have realized that there needs to be the invention of this imaginary number. But maybe, maybe there's some concept in math that we have yet to discover that would fit logically with every other concept that's been created so far. We really don't know yet. And I'll touch on this a little bit more once we get into the idea of curation algorithms. But for now, I want to explain two more concepts that are very important to the conversation of artificial intelligence, and they're tests. Now, the first test is called the Turing test. This is named after Alan Turing, and it was kind of thought up in the, the dawn of AI in the early 19th century. And he said uh, the way a computer can pass this test is to display enough intelligence to be mistaken for a human. We talked a little bit ago about natural language processing. If you were having a, you know, text conversation with a without realizing if it was a a human or a machine, would you believe that it's a human if it, you know, was actually a machine? Could it could it trick a human? That's the first test. And the second one, which the author of the Creativity Code coins the Lovelace test, which is named after Ada Lovelace, who I'll, I'll link to if you're curious about, but she is kind of another pioneer of artificial intelligence, but, but even before AI was called AI. But the way to pass a Lovelace test is for an algorithm to produce something that is truly creative, using the criteria we said before, new, surprising, and valuable. And this process has to be repeatable, not just a, a random error. And the programmer has to be unable to explain how the algorithm produced the output. And the reason for those two kind of criteria is because that means a programmer can't just code in a work of art and say the machine made it when in reality it was the code that produced the art. The Lovelace test would essentially prove that artificial intelligence had broken kind of the the creativity barrier that humans love to stand above and say, oh, well, at least we're creative. That would kind of be the, the breaking point. But Ada Lovelace, she actually thought this was impossible. She didn't think it would be possible for a machine to create something truly unique and of value and surprising. She lived from 1815 to 1852. And if she believed this wasn't possible, well, you know, almost 200 years have passed. And how much progress have we made? Does it still seem impossible or does it seem like it's on the horizon for a, a machine, an algorithm to pass this Lovelace test? Let's find out. I'm going to transition a little bit from creativity and talk about playing games. Games like chess and Go. And Go is a little bit hard to explain, so I'm just going to link a, a picture of what the board looks like. So if you don't know of it, you can just look it up because we're going to be talking about this for a little bit. But these games, chess and Go, 
are enormously complex. And I just want to give you something to for your brain to chew on. And I just want to give you something for your mind to chew on. The amount of legal chess games, you know, you, without breaking any of the rules of the game, would be 10 to the 120th power. That's how many games there are. Which uh, basically means 10 and then add 120 zeros to the end of that number. It's a big number. Impossible to imagine, I would argue. You can't imagine that. Now, the amount of legal games for Go is 10 to the 300th power. <laughs> That's 10 plus 300 zeros at the end. And I just want to give that those numbers some perspective. In the upper limit, the amount of atoms in the universe is 10 to the 82nd power. I just want to let that sink in for a second. And it's not like the difference between 82 and 120 is only, you know, 38. <laughs> no, it is exponentially bigger. I can't even I can't even wrap my head around how big those numbers are. But just kind of let that guide you. A bigger number, a much bigger number than the amount of atoms in the universe. Keep it at that. I'll briefly talk about chess because I like chess. But really, Go is the, the triumphant moment for a machine. And with these games, we get to introduce the idea of deep learning. And I kind of want to explain something about deep learning because I kind of want to give you an analogy. And if you hang with me, I have to explain a couple more things. There are two ways to program something. Top-down programming, which is where you say if you get this input, then you get that output. And if you input something into a program that hasn't already been programmed into it, you will get an error message. The other type of programming is called bottom-up programming, where the machine can learn the program can change itself based on incoming data and figuring out, you know, if it if it did well or got more points or less points, it can make its own adjustments to its own programming. And that allows for much more complex code that is going to that has superseded what a human can understand when looking at the code. But I want to give you an analogy for that. The person who invents a game you know, let's take chess. The person who created modern day chess, who I don't know, I'm not going to look it up. Whoever did, I don't think that before they created the game and said, okay, I'm going to release this for the world. I don't think they needed to know all the legal games that were possible to be played. What they did was create the rules and let people play. And the same is true with Go. They made the rules, not too many rules, I might add, and the outputs, which are unconceivably big, the amount of outputs, the person who created the game doesn't have to know every single one. And so that's this idea of kind of a, a meta algorithm. You create the rules and you don't have to know every single output. And when it comes to this bottom-up programming, this meta, meta programming, the program, the machine can learn from the games it plays and make its own adjustments. It can learn from its mistakes. 
And I don't know if that sounds like someone, but to me, that sounds a little bit human. That kind of sounds like the way humans act. We learn from our mistakes. We're supposed to. And so, yes, this this idea of the meta program, this bottom-up programming is how we think. It's how we learn. We learn from our mistakes and our successes and failures. But I, I, I really don't want to bore you because even though I like chess, I don't think everyone does. <laughs> and Go, I don't even want to understand because it's so complex. But long story short, a deep learning machine beats both of them. It beats the grandmaster in chess and the grandmaster of Go. Go was a much bigger achievement because it's a much, much more complex game. And Deuce Toy kind of goes into the whole story of that, but I'll, I'm just going to keep it short. The machine won. Machine beat humanity. Now, the question I care about, because I don't really care if it wins or not, what I want to know about is what happens afterwards. Do do the humans, does the, the grandmaster who got beat, you know, kind of give up, quit the game because, oh, they can never be the best anymore? Hell no. I mean, I, I would hope not. And clearly we've seen, you know, with the Queen's Gambit, chess is thriving. And it, it continues to grow. And I maybe it's just a fad, but it is growing. And yes, now we have these machines that can play the game better than any human in the world. And probably, it, I'm not going to say probably, will never be beat by a human. You know, and without with some ver- with very few exceptions, I I will add because this is an important um, caveat. Gary Kasparov, who was the chess grandmaster who played Deep Blue, he did win a game, and the same thing with the the grandmaster at Go, whose name I don't have off the top of my head. He won a game, and I think that's important because yes, these machines aren't don't come out of the gate so unbeatable but the machine loses once and it studies all the ways all the the kind of mistakes it made in that game and it doesn't make those mistakes again so yes the machine could lose but every loss makes it that much stronger because it learns for the next game and i think it's it's kind of hard to explain how a machine might learn to play such a complicated game so let's take this machine learning to a much simpler game. I don't know if you guys have heard of the game uh, Brick Breaker. My, I used to play that on my dad's Blackberry, where there's a little paddle at the bottom. It's kind of like Pong, but you're trying to hit these bricks and break them with a little ball that's bouncing back and forth, and it gets faster with every brick you break, and you get points for hitting the bricks. Very simple game. How does a machine, how does an artificially intelligent machine learn how to play that game? Because we have to think, the machine can't see the board. It can't see the screen. It doesn't have eyes. It's not human. So we have to go about it a different way. And this is where we have to break down the game. Because essentially, this machine is blind. And it's in- incredibly inefficient to say, oh, I'm going to teach the machine how to look at the board and then teach it how to play. The way it learns from its mistakes and successes is the point system. If it hits a brick and it gets, you know, 10 points, 100 points, it takes that as a success. And it learns that I, in the future, I need to make this move. I need to move the paddle left or move the paddle right. 
and maybe just a few inches, maybe a, I need to move it all the way down. And so it's essentially learning blind. And it can play, the, the machine can play so many games that every single game, until it loses, it learns just a little bit about the, the way it should play. And so now it can rack up these points. And here's the interesting thing that happens. And Dusatoy explains his own experience playing that game as a kid. And he said he learned this trick after playing a long time where, you know, if you hit, if you just break the bricks on the, on the edge of the screen and if you get to the little gap above the bricks on top, then the ball can bounce up back and forth on the bricks and the ceiling up really fast and you can get a ton of points that way. And that was a trick that um, Dusatoy had learned as a kid. And the machine learned that in just a few days of playing these, these games nonstop. It was able to learn that trick. And it put it into its own programming as, I need to do this trick in the future. Now, why do I bring that up? Because let's say someone hadn't discovered that trick. That machine could teach humans a new strategy, a better strategy, a better way to play the game. Now, maybe this connection is a, a stretch, but... Maybe one day machines can teach us how to play the game of life better. Do you see what I mean? When a machine can learn immensely fast and make adjustments after each failure and it figures out the best way to do something, then we can learn something from it. You know, assuming it's not so complex that it goes over our head. And this brings us to the idea of local maximums. Just because you've hit a peak doesn't mean that you hit the peak. Now, to get specific, let's take it back to that, that brick breaker game. Just because you found a strategy that gets you a ton of points and you're like, oh my God, this is so much better than what I've been doing. That doesn't mean you found the best strategy. Maybe you did, but for a much more complex game, maybe you didn't. What artificial intelligence is able to do in these games is find new heights, new maximums for us to, to reach for. And I'll just read a quote from the, the creativity code because I think it fits well here is let's say you're standing on a pretty tall mountain and there's fog all around you. You might think you are at the highest point in the land, but really across the valley past the fog is a higher peak. And to know this, you have to clear the fog. Not only do you have to clear the fog, not only do you have to know that that higher peak exists, but now, because you were already on this other mountain, you have to climb all the way down and up a new mountain. You know, I think of Tiger Woods. I've heard this story before where when he was at the top of his game, he changed his method for swinging to be more efficient, even though he had to kind of essentially relearn how to play the game. He did it because in the long run, it made him a better player. And I want you to extrapolate what I just talked about to any, you know, medium you deem fit. Maybe you're making films one way, but there's a more efficient way. There's a more creative way. I don't know, wherever, whatever medium, whatever industry you want to take that. The, the thing I'm learning is that when a, a machine can learn to play a game and then using deep learning to learn from its own data, and simulate its own games and learn how to play the game even better, then it can teach us something. It can teach us a better way to play. So that's 
that's how I see the silver lining when a, a machine can beat a human in a game, a game that humans have been playing for centuries. That's the silver lining is it doesn't ruin the game for us. It leads to more discoveries, more mountains to climb, higher mountains to climb. But the last thing I'll say is for a game like chess and go, there's a clear goal. You want to win. And the same is true in, in Brick Breaker. You want to rack up the most points possible. But art is very different. Art doesn't essentially, art doesn't always have a, a victory. There's no clear winner. And I, I also want to keep it on the topic of games for just a second because I've been playing Balloons Tower Defense and I don't even know if anyone knows what that game is, but I've been playing that the past couple weeks and it's basically just monkeys popping balloons and trying not to let any balloons get into this, get past you. That's as simple as it is. And if this hasn't been done already, I'm sure it could be done very easily. But an artificially intelligent program playing the game for the maximum victory. You know, there's 10 different kind of monkeys to choose from, and I'm sure there's a right way to play. I'm sure there's a perfect strategy to win every time, to get the best score and play unlimited. But when I play the game, I don't really care. Sometimes I just, you know, sometimes I buy a certain monkey and upgrade it because I think it's cool. I think it, it looks cool to have a, a tower full of wizard monkeys and I'm probably just speaking nonsense and I may cut this part out. But what I'm trying to say is games like that, and this can be extrapolated to art, sometimes you don't always want the best method. Sometimes it's more fun to go based off uh, a beauty, to go based off aesthetic instead of pure competition. On the final note, when we look at AI learning how to play games, it shows us that really it's a tool for exploring deeper, further, and wider than ever before. In, in this area, it's not trying to replace human creativity. It's trying to augment it. On the topic of the game Go, Dusatoy talks about how he finds it a little depressing that even though you know we can talk about how uh, humans are learning better strategies. He talks about how it's kind of depressing to know that the world champion is always going to be worse than a machine. And this is where I disagree with him because I don't think we'd ever want to watch two machines battle each other in a, in a game. It doesn't have the personality. It, it doesn't have the entertainment, the underdog factor, the the making mistakes and recovering from them, I don't think it has the, the humanness that we want when it comes to entertainment. And I think that's an important thing I'll touch on a little bit later, but sometimes it's not just about who's the best. Sometimes it's about knowing the, the personality, knowing the humanity behind a player that makes it more entertaining. And I think this will come more into play when we talk about creativity in the realm of art and music, but we'll get to that. The next thing I want to talk about, and I want to keep on the topic of consumption, not as much of us creating, and I want to talk about our consumption of entertainment, specifically curation algorithms, because that is a type of machine learning. 
That is a type of artificial intelligence. I know I've talked about curation on this podcast before, and usually I talk about it in a negative light. And I think the reason I do that is because I look at it from the lens of the creator, especially the beginning creator, because I'm like, oh, no one's going to see my stuff if it's curated to the most popular content. And it's not that my perception of that has changed. But when I change my perspective and look at it from the lens of the consumer of entertainment, I feel very hopeful about this technology. Hey guys, I'm adding this in as I'm editing the episode because I realized that although I talk about it in, in part two, which comes out next week, I didn't really touch on the, the negative side of curation technology and curation algorithms as it stands today. And that is the two elephants in the room of uh, YouTube and Facebook. And YouTube is basically Google. And those two are kind of the, the masters of manipulating us via curation. And they do this by, instead of curating something with our best interest, it's curated to push us further to the extremes, uh, political extremes, uh, conspiracy conspiracy theories, and basically just dividing us, all in the interest of their customer, which is people paying for ads. And so I think what I realized after giving this just a little bit of thought is you don't really see this as much on Spotify, and you don't really see, and basically any music service, and you don't really see this on Netflix and, and Hulu. Not to say it doesn't exist, but it's just not as extreme. And I think the difference is you pay for one and the other is free. And I say that doing quotation marks with my hands. YouTube and Facebook, yes, they're free, but we're obviously paying via our eyeballs and the attention we give to the ads scrolling past us. And so I think curation when you pay for it. When, you're, when you know that you're the customer because you're spending your money, it's much more effective. And I think we have to ask ourselves, is, this, is the curation being used helping me or hurting me? And usually if we're the customer, if we're paying with our money, then that curation is going to be in our best interest. Not always. It's not perfect, but I think it's more likely to be. So what I said about curation in this episode, I, I do believe, but I think it can very easily be misused. And so I'm going to link um, a podcast by Seth Godin, and he just talked about kind of the this dark side of curation. And I strongly urge you to listen to it because I don't want to repeat him. And I think it very much balances what I'm talking about with kind of the benefits of curation. It very much balances it. Because curation in and of itself is merely a, a tool. And when there are profits to be made with the tool, then that is where the, the danger, where the divisions of our, of our society, of our culture, that's when they come into play. And so, yes, we have to stand against the, the misuse of curation technology by, by big tech, by Google and Facebook and Twitter. But we also have to take personal responsibility and be conscious of when we're being misused by curation. And I think, and I do mention this next week's episode, but an easy way to, to do this 
is to ask yourself, is this being curated based on my fears and in uh, primal desires? So think fear and sex, or is this being curated for my growth, for my betterment, for my improvement? So I think just exercise caution because I don't know how quickly the status quo will change, even if the status quo is uh, manipulating us, making us feel like crap just for someone to make money. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Now, the the Creativity Code was written in 2017, and I think this is a very recent thing for Netflix as they added like a shuffle option essentially where you can watch something random, but it obviously it's based on your taste from what you've liked and disliked. But let's talk about how does that curation stuff work? Because yeah, we know when we listen to music on, on Spotify and it makes these daily mixes, we see some of the songs we've liked, but how does it pick the ones that, you know, we haven't heard before? We may think we have everything categorized. We know an action movie is an action movie is an action movie. But curation algorithms are essentially just pattern finders. They're finding patterns between our interests that we don't have the words for. And I'm going to quote Dusatoy to really express how exciting curation algorithms can be. He says, this is what's so exciting about these new algorithms. They have the potential to tell us something new about ourselves. In a way, the deep learning algorithm is picking up traits in our human code that we still haven't been able to articulate in words. Because sometimes it's not as simple as saying, I like action movies. It's not as simple as saying, I like rom-coms. We know that there are so many intricacies and so many subcategories in every current genre that exists, whether we're talking about movies or TV shows or, or books or music or art of any kind. So really what, this, what curation is able to do, when it picks up on patterns... It's essentially finding themes that we haven't articulated yet. The analogy in the book is it's like if we didn't have the categories of different colors, the distinction of them. We had no words to say something was red versus blue. And of course, we kind of intuitively know they're different, but the algorithm is able to categorize things that we didn't even realize were distinct. Because sometimes a movie has so many things we like about it and it doesn't have to do with the genre. Maybe we like movies from a certain director or a certain writer of the script or a certain actor or a certain kind of, of music or a, a color scheme that we don't even think of when we watch the movie. So there's so many ways to kind of categorize things and most of the stuff we haven't even defined. We think genre really helps us encompass a film but I can take very different movies in the, the theme of action or in the theme of comedy. Even in these, you know, subcategories, you know, I think of dark comedy, romantic comedy. You take two movies, two, you know, very well-respected movies, and you will find very different traits about them and some similarities. But those differences are usually the things that we haven't articulated yet because ultimately no piece of art is the same. When these algorithms are able to pick up on our likes and dislikes and can help us figure out why we like a song 
In understanding these patterns, algorithms can help us find new uh, artists and, and songs and authors and movies and whatever piece of art. It can help us find the new that follows certain trends that we like, but maybe it's not exactly the same. What I've realized is it might be important to think of these curation algorithms as kind of like a game of Uno, where you're telling the algorithm what's the face-up card right now. If you just listen to a, a rap song by Action Bronson, which, yeah, I like Action Bronson. If you put that, that's kind of your face-up card. Let's call that a, a red nine. Now the algorithm can either put down another red card or it can put down a nine of a different color. If it puts down another red card, but now let's say it's a, a red four. Okay, maybe it's a rap song, but now it's you know a completely different artist. Now let's say this new artist is a rapper, but you know their choruses have EDM elements. Now you put down a a yellow four, and it expands on the EDM elements, and it's less about rap. And now let's say you put down a yellow eight because you you're kind of matching the card that has been placed face up, and now you're fully into EDM, and you've moved out of rap through this like smooth transition. And now it's full EDM and oh, now they're singing pop. And now you put down a, 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 a blue eight. Now this, now it's more pop and a little less EDM. And now it's a, a blue three. And now it's just pop music. And I think the importance of thinking of it like a game of Uno is there's always room for the wild card. Because even the method of picking something that is similar to what you liked before it's very slow moving to get you to liking new things. But the wild card can allow you to get out of ruts. Maybe every once in a while there's, you know, a Beatles song in your Spotify daily mix. And you're like, I, I never listened to the Beatles. And it plays it and it's like, oh, wow. Maybe I should listen more to the Beatles, even though none of your previous history on the app had shown that you liked, you know, rock music from the 60s. And it... I think that's so important because it can keep us from getting in a rut. And I think that's the power of, of curation is maybe there's a pattern within the Beatles song or a very specific Beatles song that has elements of a modern day, you know, indie musician that you really like. And you never would have thought of the Beatles as being the type of music that you like, but, oh, it sounds like my, my band that I love now. And so I think that is the importance of curation is it's not going to get us. I think if it's done right, it's not going to get us stuck in the ruts that I originally thought it would. I think it will help us make leaps into new genres that have patterns that we didn't even realize were what we liked. That was a, a big rant, but I hope you followed me with that, that idea of the game of Uno being like curation. Hey guys, I had to break this episode into two parts because it was just so much I had to say. The The next episode will be out next week, and I hope you stay tuned because there's a lot of good stuff. I'm going to be talking about what AI algorithms are capable of creating, as well as what are the philosophical and psychological implications of AI moving forward. I hope you stay tuned because I think next week will be very inspiring. I wish you the best. Hey guys, 
I've really fallen in love with the medium of podcasting. And I finally feel comfortable to where I want to ask for your support. So in the description, and in all of the descriptions following this episode, I'm going to start putting a link for a spot for you to donate a small monthly amount of either a buck, five bucks, or ten bucks a month. Now this money is going to help the podcast grow. It's going to show me that this is worth my time. And because this is for creators, by a creator, I would hope that you can see that I'm doing this so I can sustain the act of creating. So if you really like this podcast, if you want to support the show, go down in the description, click the link to chip in a small amount to support the show. Thanks. This has been Purple Elephant Radio. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next week.